I don't just want everything you have. I want you not to have it. That was a line from the Phil Payne and Gain, a modest box office hit released in April 2013, starring Mark Wahlberg and Dwayne Johnson. It was loosely based on a real-life story of a small South Florida gang, mostly comprised of bodybuilders, who tried to kidnap and murder their way to fortune. You'll hear all the crazy and gory details of that story coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss last week's guilty verdict of a South Daytona man who punished his girlfriend's four-year-old son so severely, the boy suffered fatal internal injuries. Jurors found the man guilty of third-degree murder and aggravated child abuse. The child's mother remains jailed, awaiting trial on similar charges. News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez will join me for that segment. Later, I'll discuss the kidnappings and murders committed by Daniel Lugo and Adrian Dorball 24 years ago in Miami. The two men headed the Sun Gym Gang, which kidnapped one South Florida businessman and held him captive inside a warehouse for a month, torturing him and bilking him for everything he owned, before finally attempting to kill him. Months later, they tried to do the same to another businessman, but wound up accidentally killing him and his girlfriend before they could successfully steal anything. Their crimes were fleshed out in great detail in a series of news stories published in the Miami New Times. The Michael Bay-directed movie was based on those stories. My guest for that segment will be Miami Herald crime and justice reporter David Ovalle. Coming up, I'll discuss the verdict in the Volusia County child murder. Jurors on Thursday found a South Daytona man guilty of killing a four-year-old boy, but they spared him a possible death sentence when they convicted him of a lesser charge of third-degree murder. 37-year-old Joe McCaskill originally was charged with first-degree murder, and prosecutors had promised that if jurors had found him guilty of that initial charge, they would have pursued the death penalty. As it turned out, he only got up to 15 years for his third-degree murder conviction. However, the 12-panel jury also found McCaskill guilty of aggravated child abuse, which carries a maximum of 30 years in prison. He will be officially sentenced at a later date. McCaskill's former girlfriend, Mickey Charday Lewis, is still waiting to be tried. Here is News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez discussing the motive behind the crimes of McCaskill and Lewis, as described by prosecutors. Their reasons were 
that he didn't know his ABCs and didn't know his colors. And they claimed that he was misbehaving at school. However, there were a couple of a Head Start people who testified during the trial who did not say that the kid was a problem in the classroom. Jurors deliberated for a total of 12 hours, which was spread across two days. Jurors wound up being sequestered. Frank told me that it was only the fourth time since 2001 that a Volusia County felony trial involved a sequestered jury, and one of those trials was held outside the county. It's very rare. Jurors were forced to sit through a trial with disturbing evidence, even by the standard of murder cases. Here is Frank detailing some of what jurors heard and saw. I think what stood out to me, in my opinion, was watching them talk to police. And there just wasn't a whole lot of, it seemed, emotion or or regret or... I mean, he, he stated, oh, my God, this is sad and stuff, but it just didn't seem like there was as much uh, sadness or a- any of that. The pictures also of the of the child stuck out because they showed some autopsy pictures of him at the morgue with, um, like, they showed his buttocks, and there was this huge-looking bruises on him, and then there was also one of one side, I forget if it was a right or a left, had this big like almost road rash looking red thing on it and the prosecutors were saying that that road rash they actually didn't call it road rash they said it was this reddish mark was from the kid being dragged across the carpet into the room among the witnesses called to the stand was a 10 year old child the son of one of the couple's neighbors the child recalled seeing mccaskill and lewis beating the victim five years earlier the witness at the time was only five he told jurors that lewis used a belt while mccaskill used something that resembled a power cord McCaskill called 911 during the early morning hours of April 15th, 2013, to report that his girlfriend's son, Keandre Coleman, was not breathing. South Daytona police arrived at the small apartment on South Palmetto Avenue and found the boy's bruised body on the floor of a back bedroom. Keandre was not breathing when police and paramedics arrived. Police said they saw shoe imprints on the boy's buttock and chest. One of his nipples also appeared to have been gouged. Another witness for the state, the mother of the 10-year-old who had testified, said she visited her neighbors and once saw the victim in a bending over position, and he was holding that position for several minutes at a time. The neighbor said she thought it was cruel and unusual. She voiced her displeasure to her neighbor, but didn't call authorities. Here is Frank talking to me about the manner of death for the child. It was a little bit complicated. I had to resist writing he was beaten to death because that's not exactly the way it happened. As it was relayed, they said that the prosecutors were saying that he was beaten and basically positional punishment. They forced him to stand in a certain position as punishment, which was McCaskill's idea. They would say, go stand, they would tell the kid, go stand in the corner with your arms raised straight in the air and hold that position for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Or go in what they call the toe touch position, what the prosecutors call, which is basically bend over at the waist and touch your toes, but stay there for 
you know, an extended period of time. But the cause of death was that um, the prosecutors explained it as saying that the beatings and the punishment and, and the forcing him to stand in a certain position for an extended period of time caused his muscles to start to break down and release toxins into the blood, which then the toxins in the blood killed him. As I mentioned before, McCaskill's now ex-girlfriend, 27-year-old Mickey Lewis, is still awaiting trial. Frank told me the state attorney's office had always intended to pursue a death sentence for her. He asked whether that pursuit might change in light of the jury's verdict for McCaskill, but he never got an answer back from prosecutors. Jurors on Thursday morning expressed their relief, or better yet, joy, after reaching a verdict, effectively ending a painstaking trial that lasted the better part of two weeks. They started deliberations at about 8.35, 8.40 in the morning, and at, at 10.14 a.m., we were sitting in the courtroom, and we heard somebody from the jury room scream, Hallelujah! We actually heard everybody in the courtroom heard them say, hallelujah. It was a woman. I believe it was a a woman's voice from the jury room. Hallelujah. And four minutes later, they had a verdict. They announced a verdict. They probably had it with the hallelujah. And typically, it's just a rap at the door. Yeah, usually you you don't hear that. Lewis remains in jail without bail. Her next hearing is scheduled for May 29th, and her trial is tentatively scheduled for early July. Coming up, the story of the Sun Jim Gang, which inspired a Hollywood movie and has gone down as one of the craziest crime stories in Miami lore. During the summer of 1994, the Sun Gym had everything a bodybuilder could want, from an extensive selection of weights and machines, to a juice bar, and for a select few, a variety of anabolic steroids. Located north of Miami Lakes, the gym was managed by convicted felon Daniel Lugo. The people who joined this gym were serious about their appearance. It wasn't for the person who wanted to shed pounds, but for those serious weight trainers who wanted to get more shredded. Memberships and profits had been on the decline because of a Gold's Gym complex that had opened up nearby. But it was Lugo who was determined to resuscitate the business. Seven years earlier, in January 1987, John Meese had opened Sun Gym. He was an Aggie, an alumnus of Texas A&M. He majored in accounting, but college is also where he first got into bodybuilding. In 1962, while in the U.S. Air Force, he was stationed in England and won Mr. United Kingdom. By the time the 1990s rolled around, Meese was all about promoting bodybuilding competitions. Aspiring and professional bodybuilders went to him. Meese taught at the collegiate level and headed his own accounting firm in addition to owning the gym. He obviously had a brain but he made puzzling decisions during his professional life. He seemed to be a bad judge of character, especially when he hired employees at Sun Gym. 
Among those he once hired was Gil Fernandez Jr., an ex-cop who wound up committing a triple murder in the Everglades. It wouldn't be the last time Meese hired a future killer. The Jim's clientele wasn't always so great either. It was a mix of police officers, ex-cons, and drug dealers, often a recipe for disaster. In 1992, he was about to ditch the business, content to cut his losses and move on. But then Lugo showed up at his doorstep. He was 30 at the time and from New York, and he was full of energy and ideas for the gym. Lugo had a criminal record and he was on probation, but that didn't deter Meese. Lugo had spunk, and Meese liked that. The new employee began as a personal trainer, but soon got promoted to general manager. Lugo's best buddy at the gym was Adrian Noel Dorball. Lugo made Dorball some money through some illegal schemes, so Dorball became very grateful to Lugo. In the film Pain and Gain, Lugo was portrayed by Mark Wahlberg. Dorball was portrayed by Anthony Mackie who's been seen in a number of Marvel movies, as well as the critically acclaimed The Hurt Locker. I'd do anything for Danny Lugo. He was my boy. As good to me as anyone ever was. He was a big-hearted who I knew only had my best in mind. One fringe player in this fledgling criminal enterprise was Carl Weeks, who left New York to get his life straight, which had gone off the rails because of drugs and crime. He chose Miami which was a questionable choice. He was originally from Barbados and had served in the U.S. Marine Corps for one year before threatening his sergeant's life. He was discharged in lieu of a court-martial. He went on to commit burglaries, robberies of drug dealers, and was addicted to drugs. Pain and Gain co-star Dwayne The Rock Johnson. His character was a composite of others who were actively involved in the Sun Jim gang, or part-time players, and one of those real-life people who made up part of that composite character was Weeks. Another part-time gang member was Stevenson Pierre, who was related to Weeks by marriage. When they got hired at Sun Jim, they were asked by Lugo whether they'd like to make 100 grand for two days' work. Mark Schiller, a man Lugo despised, was business partners with Jorge Delgado. Lugo created lies about Schiller. He was an effective salesman, so he convinced his gang that Schiller was bad. Delgado, whose role in the Sun Jim killings, also was blended into Dwayne Johnson's movie role. He'd been a car salesman, and business wasn't going well for him. His financial situation was dire. Schiller offered Delgado a job. He was basically his gopher. Then he was promoted to marketing representative. They became best friends. It was Schiller who pulled Delgado out of his doldrums. He entrusted Delgado with everything. He even gave him the security code to his home. Delgado knew where Schiller's safe was located. He knew all about his offshore accounts. He knew everything about Schiller, who willingly kept no secrets from the guy he had rescued and molded. So here are the major players in this part of the story. Lugo, the mastermind. Dorball, his right arm. John Meese, the gym's owner, who would help with the paperwork. Delgado, an associate. 
Weeks and Pierre, Lower Level Associates, and Schiller, the victim. Delgado's allegiance started to shift more toward Lugo. He had a hypnotic effect on him. Lugo had become the older brother Delgado had always wanted, even though by then he was an adult and should have been way past that whole big brother can do no wrong in my eyes phase. Things got messy between Delgado and Schiller when Delgado started bringing Lugo into the business. Schiller thought Lugo was creepy and pushy. Delgado was so enthralled with Lugo that Schiller wound up giving him an ultimatum. Him or me. Delgado picked Lugo, and Schiller basically warned him that he would rue his choice. Lugo exploited the falling out between Delgado and Schiller. He convinced his new friend that Schiller owed him money. He was taking food from his family when he decided to cut him off financially. The details of this saga were reported by Pete Collins, who wrote a series of stories in the Miami New Times. The stories were published in December 1999, to much acclaim. My effort to reach Collins was unsuccessful, but I relied heavily on his stories for this podcast. Collins also wrote a book about the Sun Jim Gang. According to Collins, Lugo came up with an ambitious plan to steal everything from Schiller, including the Schlotsky's Deli franchise he owned near the airport. The Sun Jim Gang went to a spy shop to find tools to shock, torture, and eavesdrop on Schiller. While in the store, they acted like they were a security crew for a rock band. They bought stun guns, handcuffs, walkie-talkies, and more. Lugo rented a van. The group was going to take Schiller to a warehouse owned by Delgado. That was going to be the torture chamber. The abduction didn't go smoothly. It actually took eight tries. That is likely what inspired the pain-and-gain filmmaker to inject a liberal helping of dark humor into the movie. More on that later. On Halloween... The Sun Jim gang was scheduled to carry out the kidnapping. They dressed up as ninjas and went trick-or-treating to blend in. Strangely, and without explanation, they spent the night at a strip club instead. They must have gotten distracted. Then one morning in November 1994, the gang used a road next to a canal that allowed entry into Schiller's gated community. His house was closest to this particular road. Dorball, Pierre, and Weeks waited for the target to go get his morning paper. They had on black clothes, gloves, and military face paint. They low-crawled across the lawn like Special Forces soldiers. They were going to storm the house. It was going to be a big production. But a passing car, or maybe a barking dog, caused them to panic, and they aborted the mission. They ran all the way back to a park where Lugo was waiting in the van. He was displeased, but his anger meter would max out later. There were a few more failed attempts, making the total number six. Lugo tried to boost their spirits by taking them to a premier gentleman's club. He gave them cash to give to the dancers. He kept telling the gang that everything they were enjoying at the club, raining cash, glitter, hot naked women, 
would be theirs, and they'd never have to work too hard for it. During the morning of November 14, 1994, came the seventh abduction attempt. Lugo sat in his Toyota Camry. It was going to be used to block Schiller and his Toyota 4Runner in an alley next to the deli. The van was parked nearby, and it contained Dorball, Weeks, and Pierre. They were to pull up and block in Schiller and nab him. That plan didn't work either. Lugo did his part. He drove the Camry into Schiller's path. Schiller blasted his horn at the Camry, which had tinted windows, so he couldn't see the driver who was inside. The van wouldn't start. The seventh time wasn't the charm. The gang regrouped at the Miami Lakes business office Lugo shared with Meese. Lugo was inconsolable. No excuse in the world was going to mitigate his anger. There would be no pep talks and no dalliances with strippers this time. It was tongue-lashing time. Lugo would just keep making money through his other criminal schemes and just be relegated to driving a Camry for a little while longer. Lugo threatened to cut off his hangers-on. Collins wrote that Lugo basically told them if they wanted a Merry Christmas, they were on their own. Or they would have to figure out how to nab Schiller. Doorball and Weeks stepped up. Collins stated that it was like a football coach challenging his players during halftime. They were ready. During the eighth attempt, Schiller was waiting at Schlotzky's. He was waiting for a prospective buyer of his deli to show up, but he got stood up. It was after 4 p.m., and a perturbed Schiller walked across the parking lot of his deli toward his parked forerunner. As he opened his door, three men grabbed him and used stun guns on him. He told the men to take his money, his watch, his vehicle. He was thinking it was a carjacking or robbery. He was thrown into the suspect's van and had the muzzle of a gun pressed against his head. He was told that if he opened his eyes, he'd be shot. His head was pressed against the floorboard. His ankles were shackled and his wrists were handcuffed. Duct tape was wrapped around his head, his eyes, his mouth, and his ears. A mover's blanket was thrown over him and a stun gun kept zapping him on the ankle. He heard one of his captors say, after the van had stopped, quote, The Eagle has landed. Here is Miami Herald reporter David Ovalle. Mark Schiller was the owner of a Miami-Dade Schlotzky's Deli, you know, the deli you see like at the airports and stuff like that. And Schiller had actually employed Delgado as a business assistant. So, you know, there was a familiarity. He thought they had money, that there was enough money to be worthwhile to kidnap this guy. So, um, you know, they kind of hatched this whole plan to, to kidnap him. And, um, and, and they did. Ultimately, they ended up kidnapping Schiller outside of his deli, and, and they kept him like a month in, in captivity at a warehouse, torturing him until he, he finally was able to um, sign over his, his house, $2 million life insurance policy, and over a million dollars in investments. Schiller was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and moved to New York when he was four. He became a comptroller of a U.S.-owned pipeline company in Bogota, Colombia, where he met and married his wife, Diana. In 1989, his boss had been kidnapped in Colombia. 
a guerrilla group carried it out. That caused U.S. employees of the company to be ordered back to the U.S. So Schiller and his wife moved to Miami. He set up a CPA practice and opened other businesses. Schiller's torture at the hands of Lugo was comparable, perhaps worse, than what his former boss suffered in Colombia. He was zapped repeatedly with a stun gun. He was beaten by steroid-using men, powerful enough to bench press more than 400 pounds. He was pistol-whipped. He also was burned on his arms and chest with a lighter. His captors played Russian roulette against his temple. He was gagged and blindfolded and chained to a wall, all while this was taking place. The gang retrieved Schiller's car. At gunpoint, Schiller was forced to recite scripts. He was ordered to make calls over the warehouse telephone. That night, he called his wife and told her to take the kids and get them on a plane to Columbia. She was terrified and confused, but she obeyed. Schiller's captors had threatened to abduct his wife and rape her in front of him. Schiller was forced to call his business associates. The scripts he had to read were bizarre, but those on the other line seemed to believe everything. He'd fallen in love with a hot Cuban woman. He was so enamored with her that he was going to convert all of his assets to cash and ride off with her. They made him sign his name to several documents. The thought of blindly signing documents freaked him out because it felt to him like he was signing away his life. Schiller recognized Lugo's voice, who had an unmistakable lisp and a New York accent. He also knew that Delgado was the one guy who knew where all his money was. Four men took turns guarding Schiller around the clock. Lugo watched him during the day. His henchmen referred to him as either Boss or Batman. Robin, or Doorball, was the guy who watched over Schiller during the late afternoon and early evening. Weeks and Pierre were his favorite captors. Pierre had been kicked out of the gang, but he was brought back into the fold after Lugo and Doorball threatened to kill his young son. So he and Weeks took turns during the midnight shift, and they were more merciful. They gave Schiller water and food. It took weeks before the man's offshore accounts from the Caymans in Switzerland could be funneled into his Miami bank account. After all that money finally got directed into Schiller's account, he signed it over to Lugo and his gang. A total of $1.26 million. It was all done on December 10th. Lugo, Dorball, and Delgado decided to kill Schiller. Pierre and Weeks tried to convince them otherwise, but they were outvoted. They got him drunk and would send his forerunner to a fatal crash with him inside. Vodka, tequila, and chocolate liqueur were all forced down his throat. The gang put him on the phone with his wife. Schiller's wife put their five-year-old son on the phone. Hearing his son's voice was so emotionally wrenching for Schiller. The boy asked him, when he'd be coming home, and he told him soon, and what he believed would be his last conversation with his own son, he told a lie. On December 14th, Lugo ordered Schiller to wash down sleeping pills. He already had a belly full of alcohol. 
Hours later, after midnight, Schiller was forced to drink more. Then he was unchained, picked up by one or more of the muscled-up gang members, and slammed against the wall. At 2.30 a.m., he was unconscious and driven to a warehouse district three blocks from Schlotzky's. Schiller was placed in the driver's seat. Lugo got into the passenger seat. He slammed on the accelerator and steered the vehicle toward a concrete pole. Lugo jumped out at the last second before the violent crash. Schiller survived it. Lugo then splashed gasoline over Schiller and on the car and lit it. They also had a propane tank inside the car for good measure. Schiller somehow stumbled out of the vehicle before the explosion. Amazingly, he was still alive. Weeks was behind the wheel of a Camry. He tried to hit Schiller with his car, but missed. He tried again and then struck him down. But Lugo and Dorball ordered him to go back and run him over. So he did. They told him to do it again, but Weeks got scared after seeing the headlights of another car. He peeled off and got on the highway. Schiller lay on the ground. He was drunk and near death, while his forerunner burned to a crisp near him. December 16th, the day after Schiller was left for dead, is when Ed Dubois entered the picture. Dubois was a busy man because he was the NFL's investigator and security consultant in South Florida, and the Super Bowl was coming up. The San Francisco 49ers and San Diego Chargers were going to play another six weeks at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens. Dubois also headed Investigators, Inc., the oldest detective agency in Florida. It was a family business founded by his father in 1955. Schiller's attorney actually was the one who contacted Dubois. He said he had a client with a wild story, and he needed his help. Schiller talked to Dubois. He was recovering at the hospital following an emergency spleen removal. He also had his pelvis shattered and his bladder ruptured. His credibility to police was undermined from the start because he was severely intoxicated. He came into the hospital as an unknown DUI patient. He insisted he had been kidnapped and tortured for a month. He begged for protection because he knew if his captors heard about him being at the hospital, they'd come after him. Du Bois was very, very skeptical, but something about this was very, very unusual. He also knew the lawyer who contacted him wasn't the type who dealt with shady people. Du Bois told Schiller over the phone to get out of that hospital because it's a public facility and anyone could walk in and out of there. The Sun Jim gang checked the news. They hoped to see a story on TV about a single vehicle crash near the airport. They also looked at newspaper obituaries. Nothing. No sign that Schiller was dead. The gang called hospitals and eventually found out he was at Jackson Memorial Hospital in critical condition. The gang believed they needed to finish the job. The ideas included strangling him in his hospital bed while others staged a fistfight in the hall to create a diversion. They also discussed killing everyone in Schiller's room by using guns with silencers. 
They just decided to go and wing it. They went to the hospital and were confused. They couldn't find the intensive care unit through the maze of corridors. So they left. They bought some scrubs in anticipation for their next visit and called the hospital again to check Schiller's condition. He was gone. He left no forwarding address. Schiller's sister in New York had actually hired an air ambulance for $6,000. Schiller's life was saved. He spent a week recovering at a hospital in Staten Island. When he was released, he had to use a walker, and everything for him was agonizing, including going to the bathroom. The gang had full access to Schiller's house. They stole the $10,000 in the safe. They stole credit cards, the deed to the house, vital documents, and Schiller's wife's jewelry. They remained nervous for a while. But by January, the gang was feeling more confident. No one had heard from the police or Schiller. They decided to move into Schiller's house. They started living it up. Weeks only got half of the 100000 he was promised for his role. Pierre only got 30000 because he was the one who contributed the least. The real beneficiaries of the crime were Lugo, Dorball, and Delgado. Lugo introduced himself to the neighbors as Tom. He said the previous homeowners had been deported. Tom said the house was now government property, and he was with the government. Those seen coming and going were mainly foreign diplomats neighbors immediately like Tom. Dorball and Lugo would regularly visit Solid Gold, a strip club in North Miami Beach. They had their eyes on a pair of strippers. Lugo got his hooks into dancer Sabina Patrisco by telling her tales of him being in the music business. He wanted to feature her in a video. He was about to film that video in London. Pretty soon they were dating. Even though Lugo was married and his wife was pregnant at the time, he put up Sabina in a house that was only a few miles from his home. Over time, Sabina was getting bored and restless, so Lugo came up with a story. He told her he was with the CIA, and she bought it. She was raised on American movies that glamorize spies, and now she thought she was dating one. Eventually, Schiller got back in touch with Du Bois. He was headed to Columbia, but he wanted to hire the private detective to look into his kidnapping. Du Bois told him to go ahead and write down everything he could remember and send it to him. That's when Du Bois learned that John Meese was involved. Du Bois knew him. Du Bois set up a meeting with Meese and he confronted him about the forms he'd notarized. Seemingly to bilk Schiller and enrich Delgado, Lugo, and Dorball. Meese played dumb. Du Bois then set up a subsequent meeting that included Delgado. Uneasy about what he was getting into, Du Bois told a friend about the meeting, should anything happen to him. That friend was a former prosecutor and criminal defense lawyer. He also hired a bodyguard to accompany him. Du Bois was in a room with Delgado who was dismissive of the evidence Du Bois had shown him. It was all related to a business deal. That's what he told him. According to Collins' story, Du Bois asked him, quote, Is it customary in your business deals to kidnap someone, keep them hostage for a month, beat them, torture them, try to kill them, and blow them up? Delgado said he had nothing to say to that. 
Du Bois realized what was going on. The culprits wanted to kill Schiller. Had they done so, it would have been the perfect crime. They had his wealth. They had sent his family out of the country, and they had concocted a story that Schiller had done it all while suffering from a midlife crisis. Then Du Bois told Delgado, quote, Schiller is alive and well, and we're going to put your ass in jail. Delgado could only sit there in silence. Eventually, he asked for another meeting. This time, he promised that Lugo would be there. Du Bois showed up at that meeting, but Mies was 90 minutes late. When he showed up, he ushered Du Bois and his bodyguard, who was a former police detective, into an empty office and suggested they look at the files in there. Mies thought he only had files in that office that weren't relevant to anything. But that office was used by Lugo. Mies didn't take into account that two experienced detectives were going to rummage through the garbage. That's where they found evidence linking Mies to the abduction. Delgado finally showed up, only he wasn't willing to talk. He was willing to negotiate. They would pay back Schiller on the condition that Du Bois doesn't tell anyone. Du Bois said he discussed the offer with his client. The two camps worked on a negotiation, but it was hard to find any lawyer who would agree to the silence condition. As the two sides exchanged faxes, no money was rolling in. Du Bois threatened them with a civil racketeering complaint. The gang knew they had to act fast, and they did. They emptied out Schiller's home. All the furnishings were gone. Schiller won back the title to his house, and it was completely bare, except for the refrigerator. They even ripped out the hot tub. Du Bois decided he had waited enough. The gang had no intention of giving back the money. It was a stall. They wanted Schiller dead. Du Bois called the authorities. Schiller agreed to fly back to Miami and meet with police and take a polygraph. He was nervous about it because he was afraid that he could be killed while in town. He planned a three-day trip in April 1995. Miami PD's Strategic Investigative Division was tapped to handle the case. But the cops changed their minds. They were moving it to the robbery bureau. That infuriated Du Bois. He knew police weren't taking it seriously. The gang would continue to burn through all of his clients' money, but even worse, they would likely target someone else. When they got to the robbery bureau, they saw a detective smirking and offering mock applause. It was a signal that he thought Schiller was making up an elaborate story. Schiller was interviewed by two detectives, and both of them told him point-blank they thought he was lying. He insisted on the polygraph he had been promised. The robbery detectives acted like they didn't know what he was talking about. They agreed to it, but it would have to be scheduled for the following week. Schiller was deflated, almost in tears. He wasn't about to risk his life and stay in Miami for a few extra days to take a test for detectives who weren't taking him seriously. He returned to Columbia. Here again is David Ovalle. 
and they actually try to negotiate a return of the money. And then ultimately, the PI goes to the police, and the police didn't believe him in the beginning because it's just such an outrageous tale. Yeah, no, the story is just so ridiculous sounding that um, I guess you can you can kind of see why the cops didn't believe it. So, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 wild. In the movie Pain and Gain, the police are not portrayed positively. But in Collins' series of stories, the Miami PD was painted in an even less flattering light. The robbery detectives even insulted Du Bois. One of them told him he didn't talk to private eyes. That floored Du Bois, who thought he had respect at the Miami Police Department. Du Bois had never led detectives down an errant path. He couldn't believe how dismissive they were when he presented them with a huge case involving a gang of very determined and dangerous people. His fears were coming true. Before long, Dorball found another target, one that intrigued Lugo. Dorball started dating a stripper of his own. She was from Hungary. One day, he was flipping through one of her photo albums and saw a 1991 Lamborghini Diablo. He wanted to know who it belonged to. She told him it belonged to a former lover of hers, Frank Griga. He was about to become Sun Jim Gang's next victim, along with Griga's girlfriend, Christina Furton. Yeah, that's that's one of the tragedies of this case is that Frank Griga and uh, and his girlfriend didn't you know didn't have to die. I think if if, if these guys had been caught after kidnapping Schiller. Yeah, no, then, then they, they went after Frank Griga, and that's where it got really dark and really twisted. Griga was the son of a Hungarian diplomat. When he got to Miami, he grew tired of being a mechanic. He worked on all the major foreign luxury and sports car brands, from Rolls Royces to Ferraris. But he wanted to own them, not fix them. He got interested in the fledgling 1-900 phone line markets and discovered the most lucrative lines were the phone sex lines. He started earning lots of money. Dorball wanted to meet Griga. His stripper girlfriend eventually agreed to help facilitate a meeting between him and her ex-lover, but afterward, she ended her relationship with Dorball. Dorball wasn't heartbroken. He and Lugo had their target, but they needed help. They didn't want to go back to their other accomplices, so Lugo recruited Sabina, who was an eager participant. She apparently believed she was assisting Lugo on a CIA mission. This part of the story is absolutely true. Jorge Delgado also was on board, even though he was feeling the heat from Du Bois. Again, Lugo and Dorball hatched a kidnapping plan. And again, they ran into problems. But finally, on the night of May 24th, 1995, Lugo and Dorball were in the living room at Griga's house. They had posed as potential business associates. They had pitched an offer to Griga to help them invest in a phone line project in India. Complicating things that night, though, was that Griga kept having company drop by. Several people saw Lugo and Dorball there. Eventually, Lugo, Dorball, Griga, and Furton left together to go to Dorball's apartment. Dorball and Griga were in one room talking business, and Lugo and Furton were in another watching television. Dorball and Griga started arguing, and it got very loud. Lugo and Furton ran in and saw Griga bleeding. 
Dorball started to strangle Griga, and Lugo put his hand over Ferton's mouth and tackled her. Ferton wound up handcuffed and her feet were bound with duct tape. Dorball injected her with horse tranquilizer. They also tranquilized Griga. They were ready to send them off to the warehouse and do to Griga what they had done to Schiller. But it was clear that Griga was dying. Delgado was two miles away waiting for the call. He was supposed to help with the transport to the warehouse. His phone never rang, so he went to bed. Delgado finally got the call the next morning. Griga was dead. The girl was unconscious. Schiller was still out there determined to bring down his captors. So, things couldn't have been any worse for the Sun Jim gang. Delgado raced to the townhouse. Ferton was still unconscious. Griga was dead and lying in the bathtub. Ferton was so out of it, she couldn't speak. She knew little English anyway. She managed to call out some numbers at the gang's behest. They wanted the security code for the Griga house. They wanted to salvage the operation somehow. They wound up calling a guy they knew at the gym, John Raimondo, who they offered money to help them dispose of the two bodies. Raimondo showed up at the house and picked up Ferton by her ankle. She moaned. She was still alive. He dropped her on the floor and told the guys to call him back after they kill her. Then he scoffed at them and called them amateurs. Lugo picked up Sabina and drove to the Griga house and punched in the numbers that Ferton uttered. The code was wrong. Lugo called Dorball and told him to get that woman to tell him the right combination. This is their phone conversation depicted in the movie Pain and Gain, which was at least partially accurate, minus the embellishments for comedic effect. You can't hear nothing, man. What's the problem? The bitch is cold, bro. What? No. Her soul has left her body. Tell me it's not true now. I mean, you told me to give her some more tranquilizer, and I did, and I gave her two shots, and I think I gave her too much because now she's not breathing and we were dancing and having such a good time and I was smacking our ass and now she's dead and you're not here bro no 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 Lugo rushed back toward Dorball's apartment he dropped off Sabina and rejoined Delgado and Dorball they had to figure out what to do Raimondo didn't show so they were on their own when it came time to dispose of the bodies the next morning Delgado rented a van Lugo and Dorball went to the Home Depot and bought supplies. They bought a chainsaw to dismember the bodies, but they couldn't figure out how to use it. They burned out the engine. So they went back to Home Depot and got a refund. They bought another tool. That same morning, the maid showed up at the Griga home. The family dog had torn it apart. She called a neighbor, one who had met Griga's guests the night before. She did some sleuthing and found out that Griga's Lamborghini, which was unmistakable even in Miami, was parked on Main Street. She didn't find it, but she did see a gold Mercedes that looked like the one in Griga's driveway the night before. It was Lugo's. She wrote down the license plate number. The Golden Beach Police Department was called. Now police were on the case. Dorball went to work on the bodies. He did the dismembering. The second tool also jammed, so Lugo wound up using a hatchet. 
the dismembered bodies were placed in drums. However, the teeth and faces and fingerprints were all intact, so they decided to fix that. As if things didn't get zany enough, Dorball, for some reason, went out on a date with a former girlfriend. Delgado returned the van and then drove his Chevy to the warehouse, where Lugo was supposed to have tidied things up. Instead, and to Delgado's extreme dismay, Lugo was outside burning body parts in a drum. He was casual about it, like he was at a backyard barbecue. Anyone could have driven by and seen Lugo burning human body parts. Delgado was furious. Lugo dragged it all to the back alley and continued to cook the remains. The next few days were frantic ones for the Sun Jim gang, but police still had not picked up a strong enough scent. Eight days after Griga and Furton went missing, Du Bois got a call from a police captain. As it turns out, Schiller's tormentors appeared to be the same ones responsible for the disappearances of Griga and Furton. Du Bois was depicted in Pain and Gain by Ed Harris. The police captain was portrayed by veteran actor Tony Plana. What's up? Hey, Ed. You connected these people to the bodybuilders you were talking about. They've gone missing. People aren't just missing, George. They're probably dead. It's a big department, Ed. We can't do everything right. I didn't ask for everything, George. I asked for one thing. I told you these guys were going to get hungry again. Police called Schiller in Columbia. They needed his help. On June 2nd, Schiller returned to Miami. He told police everything. They believed him. They didn't even need to entertain the thought of hooking him up to a lie detector. Search warrants were drawn up for the homes of Daniel Lugo, Jorge Delgado, and Adrian Dorball. John Meese's office was on that list, too. Delgado was arrested. He admitted that Lugo took the kidnapping too far, but stopped talking after that. Dorball was next. So much of Schiller's belongings were found in his home. He spoke to investigators. His last words to them were, quote, I'll never see daylight again. Meese was arrested at a local convention center where he was organizing a bodybuilding competition. Lugo had fled to the Bahamas with Sabina and his parents. A task force caught up with him there. Lugo said he would tell authorities where the bodies of Griga and Furton were, as long as trial jurors heard that he had revealed their locations. He took them to the drainage ditch where the drums were dumped. The hands, feet, and faces were not in the drums, which made detectives furious. However, they got creative. During the autopsy of the female, they found implants. They recorded the manufacturer's info from them and traced the implants to the surgeon. According to the movie Pain and Gain, that had never been done before in a criminal investigation. During the ensuing weeks and months, Weeks and Pierre were arrested. Sabina was charged too. Others who played small roles also were charged. That included Raimondo, who actually did have a hand in helping Lugo hide some of the evidence. Delgado confessed and got 15 years. He became a star witness. Raimondo got eight years. 
Pierre and Weeks, received seven and ten years respectively. Lugo, Dorball, and Meese were tried together. Judge Alex Ferrer was the presiding judge. The trial began February 24, 1998, and a verdict was handed down May 4th. On June 1st, Dorball's jury deliberated 14 minutes before recommending death. Lugo's jury deliberated 18 minutes to decide the same fate for him. Meese was convicted on 39 counts. He was offered nine years in prison before the trial, but he turned it down. It was another dumb decision by Meese. After he was convicted, he was sentenced to 56 years in prison. He suffered a stroke and died in prison in 2003. So much of the prosecution's case centered on Schiller, who described his ordeal in great detail. Soon after Schiller walked out of the courtroom, before he could bask in the satisfaction that his captors were being put away, he got abducted again, this time by federal agents. Schiller was arrested on charges of orchestrating a fraudulent Medicare billing scheme. He faced up to 25 years in prison, 10 more years than what Delgado received, the man responsible for starting it all. On July 17, 1998, Ferrer officially sentenced Dorball and Lugo to death. Then in February 1999, after Schiller pleaded guilty to one federal count of false Medicare billing, Ferrer testified at the sentencing hearing. He was basically a character witness for Schiller. Ferrer told the judge that Schiller's ordeal couldn't have been worse even if he had been a prisoner of war. Ferrer went on to television stardom. Judge Alex is a syndicated daytime courtroom reality show in the same vein as Judge Judy. Schiller received the lowest possible sentence under the guidelines. He served 46 months and is a free man today. Lugo's wife divorced him. He spent 30 days in solitary confinement for disrespecting prison officials. He remains on death row in Rayford, but a resentencing looms as jurors were not unanimous when they voted for death. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2016 that majority recommendations for the death penalty were unconstitutional. The state attorney's office wants to try again, and it will seek a unanimous sentence for death. Dorball, too, was once put in solitary for 30 days, only he did so for abusing his email privileges. He likes to connect with the outside world however he can. He, too, is awaiting a resentencing, and prosecutors will again seek the death penalty. David Ovalle will be covering those sentencing hearings for the Miami Herald when they come around. Oh, um, the, the, the son, Jim crew and, and the murders were absolutely absurd. I mean, it definitely ranks in the top five 
uh, murder sagas in Miami just because of there's just so many different you know absurd elements that encompass South Florida right these guys are bodybuilders they're you know they're they're targeting uh, a guy who made his fortune in the uh, 900 sex business I mean especially for that time period in the uh, in the 90s you know this was you know this was like as quintessential Miami as you could possibly get and certainly there have been other cases that are sort of similar to it but this one it was just so incredibly uh, crazy I mean I would I would encourage anybody to actually read up on the case because I think it's uh, it, it doesn't do it justice to, to go and watch that movie the movie pain and gain generated a lot of anger mostly from those who were affected by the real-life crimes that of course includes Schiller the filmmaker Michael Bay decided to alter the name of the victim he said he did so to protect the innocent but doing so gave him the creative license to alter the character the role inspired by Schiller was played by Emmy award-winning actor Tony Shalhoub who played the part of an unlikable greedy snobby mean-spirited person another person offended by the picture was Griga's sister who still lives in Hungary Ovalle interviewed them both and he was especially moved by his conversations with Griga's sister. Well, Schiller certainly was not happy. And Frank's sister talked to me from Hungary. We spoke, and, and she used to talk to her brother every day when he was alive. And, um, you know, she, she told me, she said, you know, I don't want people to have sympathy for these guys because what they did was just absolutely horrendous. And just even based off the trailer, it looked like these guys were just sort of lovable, you know, lovable criminals and, and, and that we're going to get sympathy from the audience. And even the state attorney, Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, came out publicly and, and basically called it a mockery of what happened. So um, it is it, it was certainly strong responses by people that were involved in the actual case. Ovalle only saw portions of the movie. He didn't feel comfortable seeing it, especially after speaking to Griga's sister and others who were enraged about the film. Michael Bay is known for big blockbusters, and he has collaborated with many credible and respected people in the movie industry, including Wahlberg, Steven Spielberg, Jerry Bruckheimer, and more. But he's also one of the least liked directors among movie critics. Prior to the release of Pain and Gain, Michael Bay himself or others associated with him and the film described the project as his goodfellas. That's a lot like saying the maligned Canadian rock band Nickelback are hoping their next album becomes their Sgt. Pepper. There was even a scene in Pain and Gain in which Wahlberg, Mackie, and Johnson's characters were carrying out their crimes with the Rolling Stones song, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, playing in the background. The same song Martin Scorsese himself used in the movie Casino. I asked Ovalle to riff a little bit too on the idea that the film was directed by the likes of Michael Bay. Of course, the caveat that I've never actually seen the entire movie. I think I've seen like little bits and pieces when it's on TV in the middle of the night. But um, I think the subject matter was just so absurd. And certainly there were elements of it that were darkly comic that I think in the hands of the right people, you know, it could have been done with a much more death touch. You know, somebody like with the Coen brothers or something might have done something that was a little bit more um, true to what happened while maintaining those moments of absurdity. Thank you for listening. 
Tune in next week when I will discuss the heinous homicide cases of Oba Chandler, who was sentenced to death nearly seven years ago for the 1989 triple murders of an Ohio woman and her two daughters, whose bodies were dumped in Tampa Bay. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. 